Have you ever spotted someone doing something, something that appeared to you to be so beautiful, so incredible, that you had that urge within you, that sense that you wanted to do the same thing too, that you were inspired to follow in footsteps, to emulate that thing that you'd seen? So the story would go, Rodri Darcy experienced that as a young boy. He tells the story of how he learned to become a guitarist, how he'd been to a concert and he'd been mesmerized by this guitarist up there on the stage. And when he saw the virtuoso soloing and noodling, he said to himself, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. So he nagged and he nagged his parents and he got his first electric guitar and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, it's, it's not simply history, is it? I'm sure there was a lot of hard work, a lot of practicing, a lot of not being very good before he got to be the guitarist he is today, but you get the point. Someone who saw something so appealing and pursued it, followed it, put his blood, sweat and tears into achieving it. And we see sometimes, don't we, something which captures us and we desperately want to be a part of it. Now, during the summer, as John and I had a few weeks off from the pulpit, we welcomed in various folks to, to come from inside and outside of the church and to preach on their favourite passage. And as it would happen, we invited Graham to preach and he chose a passage from Luke's Gospel, where we are this morning. He chose Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 1. And he noted how something like that was going on with the disciples and Jesus. Clearly, they had witnessed Jesus praying on multiple occasions and they could tell that, that it was different. They could tell that it was of a, a different order, a different type to the prayers that they'd experienced and been taught growing up. They wanted to be a part of prayer as they'd witnessed Jesus praying it. And if you were with us during the, su uh, the summer, physically only, they didn't make it online, Graham took us on a journey, looking at the various prayers and the circumstances surrounding those prayers of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, up until this point, up until chapter 11. If you want to, you're able to, please grab him, quiz him on those prayers, more about it. I'm sure he would love to talk and share and um, enthuse about it. He noted that Jesus used prayer as a place to go whenever his identity or his mission came under attack. And so, this morning, it's my job not to repeat what Graham has said, but to look then at the answer that Jesus gave his disciples when they asked the question, how do we pray? Lord, teach us to pray. I'm going to assume that we've had that sort of sense, that sort of desire at some point, a yearning to pray. And to pray not just in general, but to pray properly. My best guess is that, yes, we have all felt that urge at some point. But that mixed in with that urge is an element of fear, trepidation, uncertainty. 
because I, I think probably we've all experienced two things. One, we've heard someone pray and we want to emulate that because the prayer that you've witnessed was so clear and living and vibrant and powerful. But just as likely, you've seen and heard folks praying and honestly, you've been taught a really bad lesson. It's left your brain full of stuff that hasn't got anything to do with prayer as Jesus experienced it, as Jesus presents it. It doesn't draw you in, it doesn't entice. It has actually ended up putting you off because it doesn't feel those things living, vibrant and powerful. So this morning I want us with a clean slate just to listen to what Jesus has as he responds to this request to teach the disciples and us how to pray. We're in Luke 11 verses 1 to 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples to pray. And so Jesus says to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who has sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Another friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me now. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, said Jesus, that even though he will not get up and give the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity because of your persistence he will surely get up and give you as much as you need so i say to you ask and it will be given seek and you will find knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives whoever seeks finds the one who knocks the door will be opened which of you fathers if your son asks for a fish will give him a snake instead or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus' response. And honestly, it's difficult to read that first bit, the bit that we know as the Lord's Prayer, when there's so many bits missing. We've been conditioned to think of it, to pray it perhaps, in the form that it's found in Matthew's Gospel. But here it is, how Luke decided to record this interaction, this teachable moment between Jesus and his disciples. And here's my hot take. Here's my out there view, that Jesus doesn't give them a straight answer. Why would he? Surprise, surprise. When Jesus is questioned by all and sundry, usually he comes back from a different angle and he doesn't give them a straight answer. He doesn't give them words to pray simply, but he teaches them more about the lives that need to be lived in order to pray in the right way. He doesn't give them the words. He teaches us about how we live and order our life. The answer, he says, 
is all about living as part of his kingdom, which is bang on message for Jesus. If you remember, he's, he's made a priority of his, not just to go around healing people, but proclaiming, declaring that God's rule, God's reign, God's kingdom, his way of living is coming through Jesus. And he says that when we pray, that kingdom should be first and foremost. You see, the lesson is about living life and a prayer that flows from that. When our lives are reorientated around God and his kingdom, then so too will our lives. You see, we might expect him to answer the question, teach us how to pray, by including things like specific words or perhaps bodily postures, maybe even times and places that prayer should be conducted and done. But instead, you'll notice that he focuses in on the priorities, the passions that should exist in us as we come and pray, the place that we are going to seek for provision, the pattern that we are seeking to live our lives after, and yes, even where we go when we feel under threat and attack for protection. These things which are all there, passions, priorities, provisions, patterns, protection, lots of peace, makes me happy. These things just aren't words that we're instructed to speak, but they're lives that we're encouraged to live out. And this has captured the, me this week as I've been considering this model prayer of how much of our lives are living out an anti-Lord's Prayer. It's a haunting thought to think that we live by nature the exact opposite of what Jesus instructs his followers and us to pray. You see, God is not by nature our Father. For most people, God is some sort of sky fairy, or perhaps even a, a figment of others' imagination. At the very least, he's someone to be opposed, someone to doubt, someone to question, to, to wrestle and to rally against. He's certainly not someone to be trusted and adored. You see, by nature, we live our lives not wanting his honour and his fame, the glory and the hallowing of his name, nor we prioritise ourselves, our own reputation, our own glory. We don't seek his kingdom to come. We order our lives and figure out how it can be that our influence can be extended. How those closest to us in our spheres and circles will sort of fall in line with how we think life should go. Trust him for provision? No. That's what life looks like living in his kingdom. We'd much rather figure out ways and means and schemes so that we can become self-sufficient. Seek forgiveness? We'd rather rearrange the moral landscape so that we're always the innocent party, no matter what we do. Extend forgiveness to others? Well, no, again, surely not. Not without reparations anyway, not without people repaying their debt and then just a little bit extra to make sure that we are always in the black. 
Seek him for protection. Seek him to help us in times of temptation. Once again, we live by nature far more likely to be crafting our own safety nets and our own ways of, of, of staying uh, afloat. See, that, that's our world, not the world of Jesus' prayer. Our lives, his name is not hallowed, it is ignored. People do not have plenty, they go without. Bitterness is clung to and temptation is succumbed to. In a million lives, in a million different ways, we live out the anti-Lord's Prayer. It's the opposite of how life is supposed to be lived according to Jesus. And so when Jesus comes and he answers that question of how we are to pray, First, we have to have it in our minds that our entire lives need to change. Our entire lives need to be reorientated. Our heart, our desires, our passions, all of these things need to be turned upside down on their heads. And it starts with how we feel God. Father. Father. I mean, that's always a good question to ask ourselves. Who is God in our conception? Who is God in our view? Who is God in our lives? How we view God will change how we live our lives. It will certainly change how we pray. If you think about it, if God is merely a butler to you, someone who is there at the end of a telephone to, to answer requests and, and, and to do your bidding, well, then our prayers and our lives will just be constant nagging. Our prayers will just be lists of wants and needs and nothing more. If God is perhaps not a butler, heaven forbid, but a, but a concerned friend, then our prayers will be filled with sharing our concerns, but they won't have any sort of expectation that there's relief beyond that. Relief beyond the, the weight being lifted and, and someone else being in the know about it. If God is just a judge, if God is just someone who is there to call us out when we cross the line, then our prayers will be very carefully considered indeed, won't they? We'll pick and we'll choose and we'll craft our words to show us in our best light and to conceal all of our failings and our flaws. You see, how we conceive of God changes how we live our lives and how we pray. And so Jesus says it begins with seeing and understanding God as our Father. Now that might conjure up different images for different people because of course we live in a fallen, in a broken world. We have stressed and strained relationships. Some of us have been abused and let down and neglected by fathers. But we understand what a good father is. We understand what a good father is supposed to be. We understand that, that an ideal picture of a father is someone who cares deeply. Someone who is wiser than us. Someone who is generous. Someone who wants what is best for us, no matter what. 
Jesus says, if we want to be people who pray like him, we have to see who God is and therefore who we are in relationship to that. Princes and princesses, children of the king, someone who would shift heaven and earth, mountain and ocean so that we would be blessed, that we would grow and mature just as we should. And so Jesus goes on from these words, which aren't just words, they're, they're a picture for us, a demonstration of what our priorities and our life's orientation should be. And he shares a parable. And the parable, yeah, perhaps is a little bit confusing on the face of it. It's a parable which speaks about someone who is unwilling to yield to a request. But it's always helpful to remember when we come to parables that they are, they're pretty unique in this sense that they tend only to have one point, one feature in which we can really drill down. And if we try and drill down in the various other places, we end up just talking nonsense. And so this is the parable. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Another friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I've no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, because of your persistence in some translations, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So we've got to remember that this is a parable now from the perspective of us doing the asking, not God doing the responding. See, the father is never tucked up in bed and too busy or too unwilling to respond. This is a lesson about how we should be persistent, persistent in our prayers. And that makes so much sense. It makes so much sense in the context of the first part of Jesus' teaching, the Lord Prayer, not just being about the words that we use, but the priorities we have, the passions we have, and, and the kingdom lives we're called to live in. Because if you and I are people who have gone all in on the kingdom, if you, are, you and I are people who have truly gone all in, not kind of prepping for our own provision, not deciding how we live life of forgiving others, being forgiven ourselves, not being people who are willing to succumb to temptation. If we truly want God's name honoured and his, his kingdom in our life and beyond our life and spread around in our communities, we'll be people like this individual in the parable who have literally no other option. It's not a parable about twisting someone's arm. It's a parable about someone who realises that this is their only option. They only have one place to go and so they go there time after time after time. The story is one which teaches us that we, we need to be people who are all in. Not folks who are hedging our bets. Now, there is this famous quote, classic quote in The Simpsons. I think I live a, a little bit too much of my life through Simpsons quote, but you've got Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders is Homer's very religious neighbor. He's a Christian man. And um, I can't remember the episode in particular, 
but Homer realizes that, that Ned isn't quite as well off as he assumed Ned should be. And so he asks Ned why, he, why he's poor, why he's struggling financially. And it turns out that Ned has decided that he's gonna give, he's gonna tithe to 10 different churches, in his own words, just in case we've chosen the wrong one. And we're not, it's laughable in The Simpsons, but there's a sense in which we do do that. We do do that, we hedge our bets. We pray on the one hand, give us our daily bread, but on the other hand, we're, we're seeking and we're searching for other ways and means and devices to be certain of provision. The parable teaches us that we're to pray, we're to be people who have reorientated to our lives to such an extent that we have no other option, that we are all in, that we are people who trust in and seek the Father for our good. Now, that's not to say that there needs to be in our lives laziness or, or, or a lack of wisdom and unwillingness to, to work and to be sensible and to just to say, well, I can live my life however I want because I live in the Father's kingdom and he will take care of me. See, there's other places we could go where we're encouraged in the kingdom to be diligent, to be sensible. If we're unwilling to work, that we should be willing to go without. This is about us living our lives in such a way that we recognize and appreciate that all good gifts come down to us from the Father of lights. And so Jesus is saying, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't look elsewhere. Don't turn elsewhere. Keep your eyes on him. That's how you pray. That's how you order your life. There is no other way. And all of that, if you have a mind to, could, could come across as a bit hopeless. That Jesus is saying, well, don't give up because I know that it doesn't seem like there's an answer now. It, I know it seems like your prayers aren't being answered, but, but, but keep going. That's why Jesus finishes up by giving us a promise. I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks will have the door open for which of you fathers? If your son were to ask you for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are comparatively evil compared to the good, loving, gracious Father in heaven. If you know how to give good gifts, then how much more him? How much more will he give his Holy Spirit to those who ask? So let's be clear. This isn't Jesus saying that we get our yeses in prayer because we've twisted God's arm through repetition and we've twisted God's arm because we've asked for it in the right way with the right words. He says, the reason that we will find a yes and an answer to our prayers is because slowly our prayers will be coming into line with the will of our Father. Slowly and surely we will be asking things that it pleases a good Father to give over to us. The picture is of a child coming to a parent who says, of course, yes because I love you and I want you to have. 
and I want you to, to know and to experience and to grow and all of these lovely things. A parent who says yes when the thing being asked for is good and beneficial. I don't think this is a promise that literally everything we ask for is a yes, but we know as parents, those of us who are parents, that sometimes we will have to say no, because the thing that's being asked for, though it seems good to the child at the time, will really damage them. Or because actually there's something better in our minds that the child could have, or perhaps the time just simply isn't right. God our Father is good, God our Father is wise, and Jesus' encouragement is that he is saying yes to all that is good for us. You know, it is good for us to seek his name, his glory, his kingdom above all things. If you don't believe me, well, just look at the world we live in, where we've pushed him down and elevated ourselves, where we live counter and completely opposite to his kingdom, his rule, his reign. It's not a good place. It is a place that is filled with hurt and strife and division and death and suffering. You know, when we follow God, when we, we seek after him, when we come to him first and reorientate our lives, that's where goodness and life is found. God says, Jesus promises that when we are praying in that way, which flows out of living in a kingdom, father-centered way, the answers will be yes. Now, all of this is, of course, underpinned by the assumption that God, the king, is our father. And we, therefore, are princesses and princes in his kingdom. But it's worth finishing off by asking the question, well, well, well how is that so? Is that so? Jesus comes and he doesn't just declare a kingdom, does he? He invites us to be a part of that kingdom and to be a special part of that kingdom. Jesus invites us to follow him. To follow him on a road and a path that though it is marked with struggles, with suffering, even death at the end, it's following him on a road that leads to life. On a road that leads to forgiveness, on a road that leads to reconciliation, to purpose and peace and joy and all of these things. Jesus says to us, follow me and I will show you the Father. Follow me and I will bring you into the family. And we can say yes to that or we can say no to that. But when we say no, to following Jesus on the road to forgiveness, all that's left is, I guess, guilt. When we say no to following Jesus on the road to peace, I guess that all that's left is us saying yes to distress. When we say no to following Jesus on the road to life and knowing the Father, I guess all we can say is that we're saying yes to death and, and, and not knowing God. Remember we considered this a couple of weeks ago that Jesus describes eternal life as knowing the Father and knowing the Son who he has sent. We can say no 
And we can say yes to Jesus. We can say yes, Jesus, not my way, not my will, but yours. I want to follow you even to Jerusalem, to that place of your death in our place, to your resurrection and the life that is beyond. We can say yes to that and we can find a father in heaven. And we can find our passions and our priorities changed and shifted. We can find forgiveness. We can extend forgiveness. We can, we can find somewhere where we can trust for provision and protection in times of temptation and danger. We can find all of those things. And yet the temptation will still be there, having said yes, along the way to ask the question, does this guy really know where he's going? And so a word to those of us who have put our hope, put our faith, put in our trust, put our lives into Jesus' hands, persist. Don't give up. Don't hedge your bets and look elsewhere. Don't turn around. Psalm 23, the Lord is with me as he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. That though we may be in a difficult place now, there is one who is taking us and carrying us beyond. Do not Give up on that. Okay, so how shall I finish? How shall I finish other than to implore you to follow Jesus if you aren't already? To trust in Jesus, to, to hand it all over to him and to receive that relationship with the Father. Receive forgiveness and life. To keep walking that path if you've already made that decision, if you're already heading in the right direction. I implore you to do those two things and to finish by reminding you that we that we began this asking how should we pray and Jesus didn't give a straight answer Jesus shows us in such a way that we realize that what we pray and how we pray flows out of how we view God and how we live our lives so the lesson here really isn't the words the positions the times the regularities with which and the places we go to pray. It's about how we orientate our whole lives. To come to our Father. To not live for ourselves, but to live for Him. And to trust in Him. If you, if you really want to pray like those people who you've seen and they've inspired you, if they really want to pray like the disciples have experienced Jesus, it's to it's the overflow of knowing him and cherishing him above all things. Lord God, make us to be people who do that. In Jesus' name. Amen.